Hey listeners, Connor here. Uh, before we get to our newest episode, given our modest platform, we wanted to take a moment to acknowledge some of the terrible events in the news recently. Our guest, Bilga Abiri, is a staffer at New York Magazine, and the editors there have assembled a great resource via The Strategist entitled 61 Ways to Donate in Support of Asian Communities. Uh, we're going to be placing a link in the copy wherever this episode appears, and of course, on the film stage post as well. We encourage you to donate if you can. Thank you, and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the B-Side Podcast for the Film Stage website. Here, we usually talk about movie stars, not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones they made between. Today, we're going to pivot for the second time uh, into our an hour-long digression of sorts that we've been calling the final frame. Okay, the final frame is where we dive into a great filmmaker's final film and place it within the context of his or her whole career. Um, we started with Alfred Hitchcock, as you may remember, and his lovely family plot from 1976. Today, we're tackling the insurmountable Stanley Kubrick and his final masterwork, Eyes Wide Shut. And as always, I'm with Connor O'Donnell, and we're both with a guy we're so excited to have on because he loves Eyes Wide Shut. He's covered Eyes Wide Shut in ways that others have not, which we'll get into. Uh, the great Bilga Beery, film critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. Bilga, how are you, sir? I am good. I'm very happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Uh, Connor, how are you doing? How excited are you that we're all together here on Zoom talking about this great movie? I actually <laughs> am very excited, Dan, because I think we've name-dropped this movie a couple times. Yeah. On various episodes and whatever of, I think, you and me both. It's, you know, it. It's maybe not my number one of all time, but it's certainly close. I, yeah, this movie's near yeah. and dear to my heart, so I'm excited yeah, for, to dive into For it. context, for, I think if you listen, you know this maybe, but this is my number one favorite movie ever. I think I've seen it, I don't know, 60 times. And it was funny, Bill, I was looking at your Vulture article, and I saw also, I think it was Ly Lila Shapiro wrote mm -hmm. like, I've watched it a hundred times or whatever. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, I have to meet this person. She's watched it a hundred times. <laughs> yeah. um, and my like fondest memory, maybe movie theater going memory ever, probably Connor, I think you were there. Kelly was there. We saw, we went to IFC, IFC on like yeah. Christmas Eve or Eve, something. And we yeah. saw the print of it and I was like in heaven. Oh, the literally. Best. The best. Um, but so just, all right. So let's, we'll jump into it. Bilga, we might as well start uh, with your kind of, I guess, history with Eyes Wide Shut. Before we do, I just want to take a minute to recognize another NBA fan in the room. <laughs> I don't get to do it a lot. Obviously, this is a different space for me. Also, if you listen, you probably know I'm a big NBA fan. Maybe. Um, I So, Bilga, for context, I grew up, weirdly, a Houston Rockets fan because ah, Akeem Olajuwon okay. was my, like, I loved sure. him. Yeah. And then, you know, other than that, there was no other Houston whatever. And then over the years, you know, I found my teams, but I went to New Jersey Nets games because that was my dad worked for a union and he got tickets, da, 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 whatever. Mm -hmm. So we would go to those games and I love those like Kerry Kittles teams and whatever. Yeah. And now I'm, I love LeBron and I'm kind of more of these, I know people don't like this, but modern fans where I just kind of love the sport. I'm a league pass guy mm -hmm. and I do struggle. I will admit to you 
I do have trouble rooting for the Brooklyn Nets because of their current team as much as I love them two years ago with their ragtag team. So I just wanted to give you a platform because I know you love the Brooklyn Nets and I'm happy for you because they're doing so well. So. Well, yeah. I mean, I at the same time, I kind of have the same dilemma that you do. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I am not a, you know, I, I was not a lifelong Nets fan. Right. Um, I mean, I grew up in D.C., so I was... <laughs> Long bullets, suffering bullets, bullets wizards. slash yeah. wizards fan, yeah. but you know, I mean, I I, I really became obsessed with basketball. Um, you, you know, when, when Michael Jordan was doing his thing, you know, of course, yeah. late eight, not even late eighties, early nineties, basically starting with his first championship. That's kind of when I started paying attention. Um, but during that period, I hated. I still hate. I I, I hated the Knicks. <laughs> Yeah, like was, I always was, I always disliked the Knicks. Yeah, yeah. The, the Bulls versus the Knicks. It was a whole thing, especially that first year that Jordan retired. Um, and so I kind of became drawn to the Nets initially because they weren't the Knicks, but I was yeah. living in that media market. So I was like, I mean, you could watch Bulls games, obviously, because they were always on because, you know, they were great. Yeah, they're the thing. Um, and then, you know, you could watch, obviously, whatever national games were on. But then you had your choice between the Knicks, uh, who I despised, and the Nets, who were fine. Yeah, they were <laughs> per- fun. Yeah. Perpetual underdogs. Um, and, yeah, it was only, like, you know, several years ago that I became really... I mean, I started going... When they came to Brooklyn, I started going to the games. My son is a big basketball fan. And oh, it was actually nice, quite yeah. cheap to go to, you know, Barclay Center games. So we started going... We've been going for years but then along the way, they became a really exciting team. And, you know, that now legendary team from two years ago, you know, I mean, I became so obsessed with this team. Like I would be, you know, in London uh, <laughs> interviewing, you know, freaking Terry Gilliam or somebody. <laughs> and then like I'd be in my little hotel room at 4 a.m. streaming a Nets game like like that it, my my obsession had reached the, those levels because i, I became it. so obsessed with just like the the various storylines in this team and this team full of like people who had just been like just discarded from other teams i mean there it was a cinematic narrative i mean there was real drama there and yeah i mean i'm still i'm look i i, I still love the nets i still watch them but there is something really just like something in my mind morally wrong with the fact that there's only one guy left from that team from two years ago. I know, ago. Joe Harris. I mean, yeah, yeah, Joe I mean, Spencer Dinwiddie's interest. But like so many Nets fans are already just like, and this is part of this is so much of just like the the, the 2K slash fantasy sports mentality where, right. I mean, you go on Nets Reddit and it's just people coming up with uh, trades for Spencer Dinwiddie. I'm like, just stop. <laughs> like, yeah, stop. no, it's true. Well, and you know, I realized that about myself and, and we'll, we can pivot to the movie, obviously, but like, <laughs> but for context for people listening, basically the Nets were like a team of six men that overperformed two years ago and now are essentially comprised of three of the more unlikable players, which is not, it's, not unfair. It's, not, it's unfair to those players to say it like that, but like three of the more... I don't know what you'd say, like controversial and in, in, I don't know, whatever, like Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving and James Harden. They're all amazingly talented. They're amazingly fun to watch. It's an amazing team. But obviously, just a crazy pivot. Um, but for <laughs> me, what you're talking about, I realized that about myself, where I grew up a New Yorker who hated the Celtics and hated the Lakers equally. And LeBron goes to the Lakers and I realized I'm going to root for the Lakers. If you had told 11 <laughs> year old Dan 
32-year-old Dan was going to be like, let's go. Like, I would, like, have not believed it. But because of LeBron in this fantasy, you know, you're rooting for players, not teams in a lot of cases. It's so true. It's a definitely – it's a different type of deal. I don't mind it so much, but it is – it's hard to wrap uh, your head around. Um, so it's great to have you, uh, fellow NBA fan, on, <laughs> and I love it. Um, so eyes wide shut. <laughs> Bilga, tell me. Do you remember like when you first saw it? Obviously, we're going to link to the article. You have a great oral history of kind of the famous, you know, orgy scene uh, with everything going on, which I would recommend everybody read. Everybody you have, you know, everybody talks, you know, uh, in that article. It's so uh, well comprised and researched. So what is what is your eyes wide shut kind of history, I guess, in in short? Well, I, I mean, you know. I mean, I was obsessed with Kubrick for a long time, uh, you know, from from childhood, basically. So by the time Eyes Wide Shut came out, I mean, I had been like closely following uh, this this production forever. And I remember when we first found out that he was making that because at the time he had announced, I believe he had announced AI and then he had announced Wartime Lies. Um. And then suddenly there was this news report, you know, Stanley Kubrick is making a movie with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And um, I remember a lot of us did not believe it at first. We were like, this is just, you know, this is just Hollywood rumors flying. It's not real. Um, and sure enough, it was confirmed. And then for the longest time, we didn't, nobody really knew what the movie was about. But, you know, Kubrick fans knew that he had talked in interviews for years about adapting this this novella called Rhapsody slash Traum novel um, that, um, you know, we, we like put two and two together, or, you know, and got eight and somehow, you know, figured out that it was in fact this film. And then, of course, we all got really excited because I think initially people were like, oh, God, Tom Cruise. Because remember, I mean, Tom Cruise back then, obviously one of the biggest stars on the planet and you know, had been nominated for Oscars and stuff. But, you know, there was a certain segment of kind of the serious movie going public that still disdained him because I think, you know, we probably from some years earlier still associated him with kind of, you know, teeny bopper movie viewers. And we still thought of him as like, you know, Mr. Top Gun, Mr. Color, you know, not color of money. He was in color of money, but that's a great movie, but like, you know, um, days of thunder cocktail. There was this long period of film period where Tom Cruise, you know, every Tom Cruise movie made a ton of money, regardless of whether it was good or bad. Um, and I think we kind of disdained him for that. And, the, you know, the 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 revelation that he was making a movie with Stanley Kubrick at first kind of didn't sit right with us. But then when we found out that it was this dream project that Kubrick had talked about for years, suddenly people got really excited. Um, but of course, as the hype built up and like rumors started flying and the film was, sh- you know, shooting forever and, you know, people were like, oh, my God, Stanley Kubrick is making a porno, you know, right. because people also I mean, when he's not talking, people will just take everything that is that has been said by him over the pre- you know past 40 years and reinterpret that how they will. So, you know, there was some interview years ago where I guess he and um, Anthony Burgess had been watching like a porno movie or something like that, you know, for research, quote unquote, probably. Um, And Kubrick said something like, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to make one of these with like 
real big stars and like real great photography and, and real high production values. And of course, people seized on that comment. And suddenly people were convinced that, you know, Kubrick was basically making a high end porno with like the two biggest stars on the planet, which, of course, I think um, backfired on the movie a little bit when it came out. And it was not a particularly sexy movie. No. Um, I mean, almost the opposite. When you think about it. Um, well, and Warner Brothers, don't, wouldn't you agree Warner Brothers had some guilt in that as well? Because when you go back and you look at the marketing, oh yeah, they it, really lean into this, like, they go almost what you're talking about, right? Warner Brothers really leans into this, like, you know, Cruz, Kidman, Kubrick, fine, of course. But also this, like, tease of, like, you've never seen them like this before. And I get why you do that if you're a marketing team. But, of course, it's that classic bait-and-switch play that rarely works after the opening weekend because you know yeah. this movie opened really well for what it was and then pit and it plummeted at least yeah. in america but but, so. but kubrick himself i mean kubrick oversaw the marketing of his movies pretty yeah. carefully that's true so yeah. i mean that trailer that came out um he had cut that trailer um so so that was very much him and you know if you look at kubrick's career and i'm, and I'm sure you've noticed this as well he is as much a businessman as he is an artist. I mean, oh, he yeah. is very much in that mode of, you know, I am making a product and I need to sell it. He obviously has very high standards for himself. You know, he certainly is an artist, obviously. But he also understands that, you know, you got to, like, get butts in seats. You got, you know, and even the stuff like making sure the film is projected properly and stuff like that. Some of those are artistic concerns, but a lot of it is also... You know, if this person has a bad time at my movie for, you know, reasons other than, you know, the quality of the film, that doesn't work. Um, so he was obsessive about that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, so so he's kind of responsible for that marketing. Now, obviously, um, I think there are a variety of reasons why the film was received the way it was received initially, because it was. Even though, you know, most of the reviews were sort of positive, there was a huge backlash against that movie. I mean, viewers hated it. I was there, you know, I wasn't a film critic yet. Um, or maybe I'd written a couple of reviews, but but I wasn't like, you know, um, I, there was no way I was going to get invited to a press screening of Eyes Wide Shut. Right, right, right. Um, but I was there, you know, the first show, you know, first opening day. Um, and I was watching it with like, I don't know, for some reason, it was like a bunch of old ladies and me. Um, <laughs> and then I had tickets to see it that night with friends. And, you know, I watched the film. I loved it. Uh, and then I watched it later that night, in a, you know, packed auditorium with a bunch of friends, including my girlfriend at the time. And they were just so perplexed. They were like, what the hell is this? And, yeah. you know, even stuff like the fact that the numbers on the doors as Tom Cruise walks down the street, they weren't alternating. You know, they they were like, Con, you know consecutive like i remember my girlfriend was like that's not new york and i was like well one there are, i think there are parts of new york that are like that but it's not really supposed to be realistic right <laughs> it's it's funny you say that because i was watching old like i watched the old ebert scorsese end of the year because siskel i forgot siskel died early that year in 99 yeah so like scorsese was on a lot during that time if you guys remember that and like they did their best of the decade or something and it was on scorsese's list and ebert went on this whole thing about like yeah you read people don't like it because it doesn't look like new york and i'm like i can't believe that was like a thing like the crazy thing about you know about uh the eyes wide shut thing is like 
it was it's based on like you said Bill, it's based on a it's called rhapsody right it's literally a dream story right mm-hmm. like in the translated title essentially the rhapsody you know dream story and like and even the the initial title Trom novel it's like that's what it means essentially and like it's so clearly a a dreamscape, right? Yeah. So then people are like, "Well, but that doesn't look like real New York." It's like, "Well, it doesn't look like real anything." That's the point of the whole, yeah. you know. And the fact that that was such a sticking point with people, it did feel like they were There's... just kind of looking for reasons. Go ahead, Con. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, and to I mean, the aesthetic of the movie in that regard, right? Like, to me, it enhances the movie so much, especially in the context of the fact that, like, it feels it feels like a backlot. And it's this move. It's a Kubrick movie starring the two biggest stars in the world, right? Like it just to me that that to me is just a, a thing that ties it all together in this like really wonderful meta fabrication of uh, of of what it's trying to kind of convey. Um, but yeah, that I I w- I had mentioned this to you, Dan, off mic the other day because uh, I this was a fun experiment for me because I rewatched a all of his movies leading up to it. Cause I kind of wanted to put it in like a proper context and finally getting to this one to really, really watch it as like, okay, like what, what is the evolution of this filmmaker in terms of bringing him to this point, especially after such a considerably long break, even for a filmmaker who generally wasn't that prolific. Like, I think this was the longest stint. He yeah, had definitely 12 yeah. years between, oh, yeah. between yeah. films. Right. So, um he had i mean i guess he was prolific in like spurts you know where he would they would come out well not really yeah i mean basically after basically after um 2001 it gets very like right but everything it's 71 75 right it's like the 60s into the 70s he's like he's like making two and then taking a minute yeah making two and you know but um but so then to watch it of like you know obviously he clearly didn't intend this to be his last film necessarily um, so it's not like it's built that way, but it really is this fascinating culmination of everything kind of despite that. And I feel like granted part of that is me putting that on it. Cause that's a thing that we do with filmmakers and their final films, no matter what, even if they didn't intend it to be that. But to me in the context of 1999 to, to have a career capper that, that finishes you off with you know, a a married couple who's like the biggest couple in Hollywood and to kind of use that as part of your aesthetic and part of your point is fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, to to your point earlier, Bill, and I guess just to kind of wrap up the, you know, Eyes Wide Shut in my life quickly was my parents were excited, especially my mom, because she loved Tom Cruise. They were certainly disappointed. I caught it. I would have been 12 probably the year after, right? Like, I saw it on and like I, HBO and or I, something. Yeah, yeah, I like hated it, right? Like, I was <laughs> like, I don't, because I was like, well, I don't even know what's happening. Like, I didn't even <laughs> understand. And like you said, like, if I'm being honest, at 12, I'm pr- I probably was watching it with some sort of like adolescent, like, ooh, la, la, what am I going to see? I don't really remember, but I certainly remember being disappointed by whatever version of that I thought I was going to get. I don't know. Yeah. You know, like like anybody, you know, because like you said, it's almost the antithesis. But to your point, and this is such an important point that I don't think it's talked about enough. He was a businessman and I was rereading a lot of stuff. And one of the stuff I reread is this book. um, Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, and the making of his final film by Robert mm-hmm. P. Colker and Nathan Abrams, which I think our, our good buddy Jordan Raup actually got me. Um, and he talks about the whole thing about, you know, um, so 
Schlitzler, and I'm sure I said that a little wrong. I apologize. He writes the source material in the, I think, the 20s, right? Is that right? It's yeah. set in Vienna. 27, 28, I think. Right. And it's set in Vienna. And it's ve- it's about a it's about a Jewish man, right? And it's very much about being Jewish. And it's about identity and ostracism, right? It's about that. That is what, you know, Trump Novell is about, what have you. And you read, when you read it, what uh, his co-screenwriter, Frederick Raphael, said and other people, um, Kubrick went out of his way to take all of the Jewishness away from the source material. And obviously you wind up with, he even said he's quoted, right? I don't think anybody has denied this quote. He said he wanted the main character, Bill, to be a Harrison Ford-ish yeah. goy. I mean, right? that's, and where then, the last, of course, that's where the last name comes. Well, and then people say the last name Harford is like a wink at that, right? That's what people yeah. say, right? So so Harford, right? So, um, but one of the things Raphael says that's referenced in this book, and I think in Raphael's, uh, his own book about the making, which is kind of famously, yeah. the Kubrick family doesn't like it because it's very kind of not nice to Kubrick, is Eyes Wide Open is the name of that uh, book. He talks about how... One of the reasons he wanted to take the Judaism out of the movie was because he didn't want to he wanted he wanted to uh, have every audience member have access to it. And he felt like that keeping it like a Jewish character about that type of identity would like ostracize a certain member of the book. So even that if that's to be true. That's an example of him thinking about, like, how do I want the most people to get the most out of this? Right. And then even to the point of what you're saying, Connor, what's amazing about it is then you get. Instead of any sort of like baiting of identity with that, you get the gay baiting that happens to Tom Cruise throughout the movie, which is a direct like acknowledgement of what Cruise had to deal with in the 90s of this like these libel suits about is he gay and all these things that happened and he would like win these suits. And, you know, that was like before all the other stuff kind of dropped that was like what he dealt with in the 90s and the fact that like that's a a a main part of eyes wide shut every time i watch that i'm like more and more fascinated that cruise just was like let's do it (laughs) and you know we were talking before we started recording it does make me as a cruise fan i get a little sad at how he so he was so open to let these great directors for so much of his career collaborate and mold him as they wanted to in some respects and now he's taken control i suppose for branding reasons more than anything after what happened in the mid-aughts but like now he's very much in control of his own identity and that becomes kind of more of the mission impossible jack reacher mm-hmm. ilk and your american maids which bill mm-hmm. you were championing which we agree with you we love <laughs> you i don't know how many more of those we're gonna get you know which is kind of a, a shame so yeah well i mean if you if you look at cruz's career though early on he actually controlled his image a lot so I think one thing that we see with Cruz over the course of his career is he takes an unusual amount of interest in um, in shaping the projects that that he becomes a part of. There's a great Rolling Stone interview from I think '86, what, whichever is the year um, Top, the Top Gun came out. I think it's '86. '86, uh, yeah. Um, where he, you know, where they talk about how much Cruz kind of. I mean, he basically co-wrote that movie um, and, you know, basically refashioned his character into the Maverick type of character. And he in a lot of those earlier movies, he does take a lot of, you know, he, he does exert a lot of control over the work. 
but then at the same time, you know, he'll he'll make a movie with Scorsese. Um, so I think he alternates between, like, I think he knows when he's working with somebody who isn't necessarily going to, um, you know, sit there letting him rewrite his character. Um, but then there are times when he does. Uh, and, and, you know, a few years ago, I had to do a, um, a, a Tom Cruise ranking for, uh, for, um, for Rolling Stone. And I actually, I had enough time to do it that I said, you know what, I am going to rewatch all of these movies. And it was great. I mean, it was really rewatching all his films. You realize what kind of, kind of quality control he exerts over those films. Um, even, I mean, even the ones that aren't good necessarily are so much better than they probably had to be. Um, and, uh, yeah, especially, especially in light of, you know, the kind of stuff that gets made today, I'm like, oh, you know, Top, Top Gun isn't a great movie, but like I'd kill for a Top Gun right now. <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, and then of course he, I mean, he's a strange person. I, I've, I've never met the guy, but, but from everything I've read, he's, you know, he's been, he's been living as kind of this like powerful <laughs> movie star for so long that anything he does you know, kind of gets overthought. It's very hard for him to just toss off a movie. Um, and as a result, I think we're seeing less and less of Tom Cruise actor and more and more of Tom Cruise, you know, action star or franchise star. And he's trying, you know, I mean, he's made a number of films that that feel like they are trying to start franchises. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of them have, you know, I mean, like Jack Reacher, obviously he did a second one, didn't do that well. Um Mission Impossible has obviously continued for a long time. I mean, some of that is just being able to read the market and read the reality of of what movies are like nowadays. But sure. yeah, I mean, watching American Made, you know, I, I just remember thinking to myself, this like, there he is. Yeah. yeah. That's Tom Cruise. Yeah. Like, what happened to that guy? Please bring him back, somebody. But of course, he, you know, just a couple of years earlier, he made um, Edge of Tomorrow, which again, feels like... I mean, I guess now it's getting a sequel, so it is going to be franchised. But it was a great movie, and it was a great Tom Cruise movie, and and very and a great performance about yeah. his yeah. about his star image. Yeah, and I think a lot of that to what you're saying too, like uh, also like reacting to the market and movies today, and like what things will allow. I mean, I do think obviously there's him as a producer trying to not shoehorn, but just find moments in these movies, even if they're like you said, even if they're not particularly great, even some of the more recent ones, I, again, as a fan, general fan of his work, like I find little nuggets in them, you know, in terms of like, I don't love sure. oblivion, but I do think like, I don't know, like the first 15 oh, of that movie. I'm looking, I'm looking at Bill uh, rolling stone rankings. He has an 18, uh, baby. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm like, look, I don't, I generally, I don't love it, but I think the first half of that movie is like, kind of unimpeachable i think it's really good and i think part of it is because cruise is really great in it but yeah um not to pivot too far down that road but to go back to something that you were mentioning dan in terms of like how much he allows to kind of air out the dirty laundry so to speak in this movie in eyes wide shut right i mean you and i were talking the other night while i was watching this of like well, uh, yeah programming it, yeah go yeah, ahead, yeah like programming like how many great movies have there been that are basically just like movies. watch watch a hollywood couple disagree yeah, movie star <laughs> divorce movies right where like you have like you program this with like virginia who's, who's afraid of virginia wolf by the sea and this <laughs> right of just like movies where it's which by by the sea got we were talking about this bilga it got under 
you know, people didn't like it when it came out. And including me, I don't know that I liked it too much. But me and my wife rewatched it a few months ago and we were kind of like, you know, this is there's something here. Like there's something oh, yeah. here in this movie. You know, I'm not calling it my favorite movie ever, which is Eyes Wide Shut, or even Virginia <laughs> Woolf, which is which is a you know a masterpiece in its own right. But certainly if you program the three of them, you know, maybe with a little dessert of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I don't know. I think it's okay. I, I yeah. guess that's what I'm trying to say is it's, you know, who knows exactly what was going on, obviously, like specifically in their marriage in the exact moment that they're filming this. But obviously, 2020 hindsight and all that, you watch this movie and you're like, oh, there it is. It's right there on screen for all like for all of us to see. And that scene, obviously, in particular, uh, we haven't gotten too much into plot yet, but that yeah, scene I mean, yeah. where it all kind of turns is maybe one of the greatest things ever put on film. Like, I, I don't know. Look, women don't, they basically just don't think like that. Millions of years of evolution, right? Right? Men have to stick it in every place they can, but for women, women, it is just about security and commitment and whatever the fuck else. A little oversimplified, Alice, but yes, something like that. If you men only knew. I'll tell you what I do know is you got a little stone tonight, you've been trying to pick a fight with me, and now you're trying to make me jealous. But you're not the jealous type, are you? No, I'm not. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife. Maybe because you're the mother of my child. And I know you would never be unfaithful to me. You are very, very sure of yourself, aren't you? No. I'm sure of you. <laughs> Do you think that's funny? <laughs> now we get the fucking laughing fit, right? dining room there was this young naval officer and he was sitting near our table with two other officers <clears throat> no the waiter brought him a message which point he left nothing rings a bell no I first saw him that morning in the lobby. He was he was checking into the hotel and he was following the bellboy with his luggage to the elevator. He 
He glanced at me as he walked past, just a glance. Nothing more. But I could hardly move. That afternoon, Helena went to the movies with her friend, and you and I made love. And we made plans about our future. And we talked about Helena. And yet, no time was he ever out of my mind. Yeah, I mean, I was saying to Connor Bilga, like, you know, Connor mentioned the first 90 minutes of this movie, I think, are what people think about when they think about this movie as which which you know the quick primer uh, you you've seen it if you're listening i'm assuming but basically bill hartford is a new york city doctor obviously a has plenty of money doing what he does he's got kind of an uh, art gallery wife in between jobs named alice they have a little girl named helena and essentially um a night after a party at their ultra rich quote unquote friend Victor Ziegler's mansion results in them getting high Alice confessing having this fantasy after meeting this sailor a couple summers ago about running away with him and that throws Bill into a tailspin literally into like an odd a 24-hour odyssey in which he winds up in a precarious situation with a prostitute named Domino sex worker named Domino a a um a precarious situation with a piano player who invites who kind of unintentionally invites him to what becomes this orgy which you mentioned this orgy scene that feels like an illuminati-esque scenario which people <laughs> have made uh, uh made much of since and ultimately it's meant to be this kind of dreamlike representation of all of the guilt the guilt and fear and inadequacy that we deal with in our relationships on a day-to-day level that, that in, in one respect comes directly from the source material, Trump novel and Kubrick's own life, by his own admission, you know, with his long and, and very obviously loving marriage uh, with Christiane, his wife um, and many other things. And he's just this, a beautiful kind of come down moment for the biggest movie star in the world, Tom Cruise um, and kind of watching him play into his own and, inadequacies which is kind of interesting and that's basically the movie but we were saying the first 90 or so essential but my two favorite scenes are the back hour where it's basically the alan coming hotel scene is one of my favorite scenes ever and then the the victor ziegler played by Sidney pollock pool bill the the you know the billiards room scene essentially the end of the movie is i can confidently say my favorite scene in any movie I've ever seen. I, I sometimes just watch it for like, just 
I sometimes just like watch it just just like before I go to sleep. Just like interesting. I love that scene. I love Sidney Pollack. And I mean, I've, you might know this if you're listening. Harvey Keitel uh, film scenes as Ziegler, but this is still, I believe, the longest consecutive running film shoot in the history of Hollywood. Four hundred days, I believe. And so Keitel had to replace, had to leave to film another movie, um, and that's when Pollack came in. Same thing with the Marie Richardson character was played by Jennifer Jason Leigh. So those are two kind of swaps. But the whole like. If I told you their names, I'm not going to tell you their names, but if I told you their name, like every line delivery is It perfect. got me thinking too that like, obviously when we lost Sidney Pollock, we lost a great director, but like we also lost a great like, actor, an amazing great actor. actor. Like, yeah. and it, because I also, I also, I often think about this movie in conjunction with Michael Clayton because they, they, they feel similar, right? It's like Sidney Pollock explaining the hard ways of the world to the main character the ultra rich to yeah yeah. Um, the the, the ultra rich to the only normal rich yeah Yeah. right right well and that's okay i'm glad you said that because that's another thing we haven't exactly wrapped up in this is part of that inadequacy right like is just the way this movie so clearly and obviously like beats a dead horse in terms of its representations of like class and wealth and and the desire that comes with that right like because you know as you're given these like shots down hallways of you know uh bill and alice's lovely central park west apartment you're like what could they possibly want this seems great and like It is like an interesting, I feel like the way this movie reframes perspective and warps perspective in that regard is kind of fascinating to me too. That like, you know, you watch this as, as a, as a normal person and you're like, oh yeah, that seems lovely and, and, and maybe frankly unattainable. Right. And then it's this, the movie kind of confidently just says like, okay, hold my beer. Like I'm going to show you what's actually unattainable, (laughs) like, and probably a place nobody should go. Right. And that's sort of the the tailspin that that Dan was talking about. But um, yeah, I, I, I the funny thing when I mentioned to you about that the first 90, Dan, um, is that it was something that stuck out in my head because it's something I've noticed a lot as I've rewatched all of Kubrick's movies. I feel like it's kind of a pattern with many of them that, you know, maybe with the exception of like The Shining, but his huge movies, right, that everyone remembers, whenever anybody talks about them, whether it's Clockwork Orange or Full Metal Jacket, the things that people tend to, I feel like, cling to are all the stuff that happens in, like, the first 45, you know? And what's weird is those, uh, Clockwork and Full Metal Jacket specifically are two movies that I think I saw when I was 15, didn't really like very much, and never really revisited them. Like, kind of was just like, nah, I don't like them. And in rewatching as I was going through all of his movies, um, I liked Clockwork a little bit more. I still don't love it, but I definitely liked it more because I just you rewatch it and you remember like, oh, no, but like all the good stuff is in the back half. Right. And same thing with Full Metal Jacket, like uh, which I did actually like quite a bit more, but I wasn't prepared. It had been a minute since I've watched Eyes Wide Shut, maybe a year and a half or so. Um And I wasn't prepared to kind of revisit it in a way that struck me with the same pattern where I was like, oh, there's right. There's all that stuff happens and we're only like an hour in or whatever. And there's just this whole other kind of, uh, like you said, Dan, kind of come down moment. That's basically the meat of the movie. 
I wanted to note a couple of... I want to get back. I'm fascinated by uh, your fondness for the the Sidney Pollock billiard scene, yeah, uh, Dan. Um, but I, and I want to pin that for a second because there are two things I wanted to mention before I got uh, one. By the Sea, good movie. Um, yeah, flawed movie. I think you know there are certain things about it that don't quite work, and I think it maybe overstates kind of the central you know, dramatic storyline between them. But uh, so, so many beautiful things in that film. I remember reviewing it at the time. I, 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 I was like trying to acknowledge all the things in the film that I thought were beautiful in this like really apologetic tone because so many people ha- were predisposed to hating that film before it mm. ever came out. And, and it is, you know, it is always fascinating when, you know, movie stars whose lives are speculated upon endlessly make a movie about, some version of themselves. Um, I mean, movie stars are always making ver- movies about versions of themselves, but when it's a relationship like that, um, hmm. you know, I mean, the world was just ready to hate by the sea, uh, you know, you know, before, before the curtains opened. And, um, and I'm, I'm glad that it's getting kind of rediscovered. Um, and I, I need to rewatch it again myself. The other thing is, you know, uh, when you're talking about this notion of, um, Kubrick taking the Jewishness out of uh, the character uh, in the film or in the story. Um, I mean, that's, a, you know, that's something that Raphael has has talked about. And obviously that is something that is very important for Frederick Raphael as a writer as well, if you've read uh, his, his novels. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's a fascinating light through which to view Kubrick because you know, he's always been accused or he was always accused of being very impersonal, right? Being very cold and very impersonal. But if you look at his films, then I don't find them impersonal at all. I mean, something like Barry Lyndon, I think, is, you know, obviously Stanley Kubrick wasn't, you know, an Irish wanderer, you know, in the 18th century. But, you know, the story of, you know, a kind of outsider, an ethnic outsider making his way into you know the great drawing rooms of you know english aristocracy made by you know a jewish kid from the bronx who you know now lives in a stately home among you know various you know dukes and counts and i mean there's absolutely something there i think that's a very personal film um and i think eyes wide shut is like that and and that expression that shows up in his movie you know Certain directors actually show their hands in fascinating ways, even though they themselves try not to. I mean, Michael Mann has Time is Luck, which just shows up in all his movies. And Kubrick has All the Best People that shows up in all his movies. Doesn't show up in Eyes Wide Shut, but my God, is Eyes Wide Shut all about, quote unquote, all the best people and yeah. the things they do you know, behind closed doors. Um but the billiard scene I find fascinating and I find it fascinating that you say that you will put it on before you go to sleep because it has this very incantatory quality, right? I mean, when I first saw it and, and I, you know, I've always loved Eyes Wide Shut, but I've always accepted Eyes Wide Shut as probably not Kubrick's final cut of that movie. Not right. because he was like not done, but because, it, you know, Kubrick, his whole career was always cutting until the last second and sometimes post-release, right? So... Who who the hell knows what was going to happen in those three months? Um, I mean, he was not going to just like s- s- let that movie sit in picture lock for three months. You know he was going to mess with it. And yeah. the, the billiard scene always drove me a little crazy because I watched it and I would say to myself, this is going 
This is so slow and it's paced so weirdly. And, you know, the camera movement is, is very precise. You know, like every cut follows the camera, um, the camera movement. There, there isn't any like nipping and tucking happening in that scene. I mean, every line of dialogue is Sidney Volok says something, <laughs> beat, and then Tom Cruise repeats yeah. it, beat. And I remember watching it and thinking to myself, he he just, he hasn't edited the scene yet. Like, right, he, right. This is an assembly of the scene, and you know, if he had lived another you know two months or three months or whatever, like he was going to go in there and tighten this thing up because this scene is like not quite doing the thing I think it's supposed to be doing, which is pulling the rug out from under Tom Cruise's character. But at the same time in a film that is so much about dreams and so much about kind of this like hallucinatory reality that this character is living through and this almost hypnotizing quality. Um, I mean, it's a scene where Sidney Pollock is basically hypnotizing Tom Cruise. Bill. Suppose I told you that that everything that happened to you there, the threats, the, the, the girl's warnings, her last minute intervention, suppose I said that all of that was staged, that it was a kind of charade, that it was fake. Fake. Yes. Fake. Why would they do that? Why? In plain words, to scare the living shit out of you. To keep you quiet about where you'd been and what you'd seen. Have you seen this? Yes, I have. I saw her body in the morgue. Was she... Was she the woman at the party? Yes. She was. Victor, 
The woman lying dead in the morgue was the woman at the party. Yes? Well, Victor, maybe I'm missing something here. You called it a fake, a charade. Do you mind telling me what kind of fucking charade ends with somebody turning up dead? He says something. Tom Cruise repeats it. Sidney Pollock, you know, hits his hits his little um, pool yeah. cue the way yeah. Red Cloak did uh, yeah. in the in the orgy scene. I mean, there's something really creepy and mysterious and wonderful happening there. Um, and even the camera movement is similar to the uh, the opening of the or the disrobing you know the the right. chanting and the orgy scene yeah so there's something there's something there i mean it's i mean this is a film of endless mysteries um and the fact that you know he died before quite finishing it just enhances the mystery well yeah and, and for quick context on that uh listener basically kubrick dies right after they show a cut to warner brothers right and right after Right before they show the cut to Warner Bros., they show the cut to Cruz and Kidman, right? So they show it like twice. It's like done, right? Like you're saying, mm -hmm. Bilga, but as you're, of course, rightly saying, Kubrick, famous tinkerer before and after the release, what have you. So you're totally right. He dies. It's done in the sense of it has been cut together. But of course, I no doubt he would have made changes, right? And then, look, people like Leon Vitale, right, who if you've seen... um it's film worker, right? Is the name mm -hmm. of that great documentary. He's uh, an actor in Barry Lyndon who then becomes one of, if not the kind of essential assistant of sorts to Kubrick for the rest of his career um, and does every manner of kind of small to big, you know, uh, uh, errands, you know, and that's, and that's underselling how important this guy is. <laughs> and he, and he talks, he talks about, having extensive notes about how to finish the movie and he kind of very he feels like a trusted kind of voice in in that it this was close to how he wanted the movie to be and whatnot but if you remember back in 99 to 2000 arlie ermy had that quote remember where he was like stanley called me and told me that tom and nicole stole the movie from me and then like everybody was like that's not true but like there was that weird vibe that happened where like Cruz and kidman had to come out and be like no 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 this is his you know we love him he's the best this is his movie that was a whole thing that happened along with the release of the movie like we're talking about a very strange kind of you know oh did he get the movie stolen from him was he a senile old man and like it was you know they there was a, a vanity project and like that was all a thing in 99 which has kind of fallen away obviously by yeah. now but anyway just for quick context on that yeah, yeah. well i mean it, it's having talked to some of the people who had to um deal with for example the um you know the the insertion of like the digital uh right you know, the, the censoring of the RG. Yes, yeah. yes yes you know and then the then then the dubbing of some of the actors including you know bringing in kate freaking blanchett yeah. right, right, which right. i did not know until i read your oral history was that did was that did that get broken did leon was that like your article broke that news so what's funny is yes i did leon because leon was like i've never told you told anybody this but what's funny is he couldn't remember i can't remember how i presented in the um in the oral history, I think I think I I cleaned I up. You, the, yeah, I think the, you like bracketed, right? You were right. I, well, well, yeah, because what he said was he was like, 
because I was trying to figure out who did the voice because you know the 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 actress who had been playing Mandy wasn't the character wasn't the actress playing the the mysterious, mysterious woman. woman yeah and and the mysterious and I talked to Abigail Good who did the mysterious woman and she was like yeah you know and I and I, and I was sorry that they didn't use my voice you know because she she did her whole voice and and she was like they did some you know they used somebody else and I was asking Leon who it was because I thought maybe it was they had brought in that original actress back and leon was like no 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 we used oh gosh what's her name you know the australian actress and i was like <laughs> do you mean nicole kidman and he's like no 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 what's the other one and i jokingly just said oh yeah what kate blanchett and he's like yes kate blanchett and i was like kate blanchett <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it clicks in such a crazy way because on the on the rewatch i was watching it and i was like oh of course that's her. like it was like how did how did I not think it was him? Yeah, but 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 what's funny is I believe that Jan Harlan, the producer, also told Abrams and Coker for the book. Yeah, uh, which came out right around the same time. So we kind of like jointly, jointly broke it. But of course, like more people read like you know blog posts or <laughs> histories of the orgy scene than they necessarily read, or at least initially in the first you know week of publication read a read a book. So. So, you know, I, I got the credit for it, but we kind of bo- both broke it. But it's um, but I think that also um, talking to the people who, who were brought in afterwards to, um, to to mess with, not mess with, but to do the digital inserts and stuff like that. There was such um, care taken with the film. I mean, nobody wanted to touch a single edit that Kubrick had made, which is why they didn't cut around the you know, the offensive bits in the orgy scene. It was very much, this is how Stanley left it. Nobody here wants to be the person that cut, you know, that yeah. cut Stanley Kubrick's final film. Uh, so we're just going to put these, you know, <laughs> put these black figures in there. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting, I mean, and it's, it's like you're saying with these movies, right? It's like, this is so common now. And this is just the way, look, this is the way that art works. But like 22 years later now, it's regarded in such a different way, of course. Oh, yeah. And, and it's so fascinating. Um, and even like stuff like rereading, uh, you know, the, the, the Coker Abrams book, which we're talking or referencing, they bring up the point, which I didn't even think about. I rewatched like Lolita and Spartacus. Cause those are like my lesser seen ones of, of his. And I just rewatched all of the documentary shorts just cause I, mm-hmm. you know, I figured why not. Right. And, um, and it's so crazy. They say in the book, they're like, oh, the Ziegler, because Ziegler's character is not in uh, the, in the, the source material short uh, novella, mm-hmm. right? So they mention how Ziegler serves Eyes Wide Shut the way Quilty serves Lolita mm. in the sense that he's always lingering even when he's not on screen. And I was like, oh my God, of course. Because like rewatching Lolita, I forgot that Sellers is like basically not in that movie. He's in the opening scene. He's in like, three other scenes he plays the weird doctor for the one scene Mm -hmm. and then at the end it's like it was quilty all along right you're (laughs) like oh okay that guy who's i mean in in sellers is great not unlike pollock and he's he's effective and everything but it's funny how it's like that choice he makes and you know lolita is so specifically structured the movie as compared to the book and that's kind of it's famous of course the way kubrick decided to mess with the structure and of course one other thing i forgot is the only oscar nomination that got that movie got was uh nabokov got nominated for adapting (laughs) his own work nothing nobody else got nominated which is interesting um but um 
Yeah, it just those things are interesting. And it goes back to what you were saying, Connor, about this feeling, whether or not we're giving it to it or not. And we talked about this actually with Family Plot as well. We're like, Family Plot was not meant to be Hitchcock's last movie, but to watch it now is to feel some sort of like this feels like an amalgamation in a lot of ways mm -hmm. of everything he did well. And, you know, you're probably putting it on that as well, but not unlike with, with Eyes Wide Shut, even maybe more so. It certainly feels like Kubrick taking all of his tools after a long break where, you know, AI almost got made, you know, um, his Holocaust movie almost got made, right? Yeah, I think you mentioned mm -hmm. um, the other movie, which escapes me now, Bilga, but, but, but the, he's, you know, uh, you know, the Napoleon movie dies way before that, of course, it kind of ends up in a way becoming Barry Lyndon is a part of that and whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then this becomes his last great work, which feels like he's kind of grabbing from every other thing he did. And the com, yeah. you know, there's comedy from Strange Love and Lolita, yeah. right? There's mm -hmm. there's class warfare from Barry Lyndon. You know, there's there's kind of um, you know the the violence of of obligation. You know, that might it's a little stretchy, but from Full Metal Jacket, right? There's kind of the dreamscape element of the shining. You know, there's every you can pick everything, right? And I think that that makes it such a beautiful tapestry, you know. I'm glad you mentioned the comedy because on the rewatch, I also just forget every time like how funny this movie is. Like, uh, and I'm gonna get his name wrong because I get it wrong every time. Uh Croatian character actor. Raid Shabreja, I think, is his name. That's clutch. Very close, Connor. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's amazing. That's like one of those things where I'm like, take taken two star. Raid yeah. yeah. Where, where, where I was like, can we just give this dude an Oscar? Like that. The two scenes that he's in, he's like amazing and like insanely funny. You have you no sense of decency. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned he like asks him about his thinning hair and oh, it's so great. Anyway, which that that scene is in the book a little bit. That whole. Right. Or the, maybe it's not in the book. Maybe I'm confusing it. Terry Southern, I think, wrote a version of that scene. Because, mm -hmm. like, another thing we didn't mention is that he, be, he tried to get it made forever. So, like, Anthony Burge is Terry Southern. <laughs> um, David Mamet. There was a rumor that he took a pass at a certain point in wow. the 90s, right? It's like every screenwriter tried to write this. He he approached Woody Allen to star, which that's obviously people know that now. He approached Steve Martin to star in it, right? It's a very funny. The the production is crazy over the years. Uh, anyway, sorry, Connor, go ahead. No, no, no. But just that scene, and then the uh, the scene with Alan Cumming, like you mentioned, also very funny. But like the way he's able to kind of even just wrap that up in the sinister, like that Alan Cumming scene. The reason it's so great is because like. It's funny, but it's also obviously like insanely tense as the conversation escalates and you like they're like talking about Nick Nightingale and you're like, oh, this is weird. Right. And you have that paranoia that's seeping in. And frankly, like even the matter of factness of the scene where he goes back to the house and is given the hand <laughs> or given the typed note. Right. Is given uh, the meme. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. right. Yeah, your inquiries, stop your inquiries. Uh, we hope this will be sufficient, you know, all that. Um, it's amazing because it's just, it's like funny and it's matter of factness. Um, and I think also, again, in that meta 1990, 1990, 1999 way of 
kind of watching Tom Cruise get emasculated for a whole movie, right? Um, <laughs> the, it's sort of like an Edge of Tomorrow-y kind of thing. There's like a satisfaction in that, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That was just a thing that really struck me. And it's just like how funny the movie is it's sort of in hand in hand with how like sinister and and harrowing it can be. Well, that's the Kafkaesque quality too. Sure. And I think, you know, Kubrick always understood. I mean, Kubrick, I think, loved Kafka and also understood that Kafka was effectively a comedian, you know, a comic writer. Um, I mean, for, for everything, you know, despite the fact that Kafka is always sort of seen as this like, you know, portentous, grim, you know, Central European, you know, brooding figure. Um, you know, Kubrick got that there was something fundamentally absurdist and, and funny about his work. And I think that comes through in Eyes Wide Shut, um, which is, I mean, obviously not based on a Kafka, but but is suffused with that with that sort of atmosphere and and that um sensibility um and i think you see that i mean one of the other things about uh, eyes wide shut that i always you know because i remember when it first came out one of the, uh, the you know much of the criticism also focused on cruz's performance because he was seen as a little wooden uh, a little awkward whereas nicole kidman was was fantastic um and at this at the time, I wasn't entirely sure that Cruz's performance was working. But then I realized, actually, it works really well because there is something awkward about that character. I mean, the best way to think about this movie for me is imagine Tom Cruise's character walking through the whole movie with a kick me sign on his on his back, stuck to his back, because that's sort of what happens. I mean, he walks into this like masked ball with a mask, you know. Nobody is supposed to know who he is, and they know exactly who he is the right. second he walks in, um, which makes no sense except in a dream. But also, you know, I mean, it's like it's like there, he can never escape who he is, um, and and there's something very poignant about that, but also something very universal about that. And I think that's also why. Kubrick probably took the Jewishness out to, to, to make it, you know, I mean, you mentioned it, you know, to, to sort of make the character just sort of universal, um, which is which is weird. But but at the same time, I think you understand where he's coming from and that he wants us to not know entirely why this guy is 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 constantly being singled out. He just is. And that's kind of the the situation that, that we all are. I mean, I don't think any of us goes through life thinking, you know, well, I am just the, the most average, <laughs> middle of the road, uh, you know, unimpeachable uh, figure in the world. All of us go through life thinking, oh, my God, one of these days I'm going to get found out. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and you know what's funny? I, I can't believe I'm going to reference this this movie that I'm about to reference. It's talking about my favorite movie ever. But <laughs> there's this I can't believe I'm about to do this. But, it, but it, there's a point. There's a, this movie called Waiting. From 2005, oh, which yeah. is not not the strongest picture in the world. Though, as a former server, sure. all the waiting table scenes are actually very uh, well well rendered. But but anyway, there's a line that's actually great in the movie where Anna Ferris is 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 like destroying Ryan Reynolds, and she says to him, "You ever walk by people and they're laughing for a split second? You think to yourself, are they laughing at me? But then you go, no, 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 that they're not laughing at me, and you keep going. Well, in your case." They are laughing at you. 
all the time, right? It's like a great yeah. little line. And that's exactly what Eyes Wide Shut is for two hours and 40 minutes. It's literally like, it's like in a dream, Bill Harvard being like, am I bad at sex? Does my wife not love me? And am I, do I don't know what I'm doing. Like, should I have explored more when I was a young guy? You know, all of the things. And all of a sudden he's like walking through every inadequacy and everybody's being like, yeah, definitely. That's true. Like a hundred percent. And like, that's, and that's part of, again, the genius of it being 1999 Tom Cruise, right? Like, yeah, yeah it's great. Being the, the, you know, the most handsome, unimpeachable movie star on the planet and, and, yeah. and watching him just get swallowed by insecurity. It wouldn't have hit the same in 09, obviously, for, for obvious reasons. No, no. And then one thing we didn't even talk about is talking about the class system. The other thing I love is they do do, uh, they, Kubrick does well to, established the below of of Cruz as well to the point which I love 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 of having Thomas Gibson <laughs> who is the not Tom Cruise Tom Cruise in the other Cruise Kidman movie far and away far and away uh, yeah. come back to play Carl who's like what if I wasn't Tom Cruise right what if I was Thomas Gibson and I like love it I like love that Kubrick has the wherewithal to be like bring him back yeah, let's it do be, it bring it can't be back. an accident it can't like, be an accident yeah. no way no well, way the also um I mean the, the, I was thinking about how Luis Buñuel would have made this movie oh, and I think the, I think if Buñuel had made this movie in 1999 I think what would have happened would be in that like in there like you know like hot bedroom scene right after uh because the, the first part of the movie it's very important that tom cruise be tom cruise right mm -hmm. um but during that scene if bunuel was making this movie right after she said if you men only knew the camera would cut back to bill harford and he would now be being played by ben, ben stiller <laughs> right? Right, right like he would right. Have, like he would have been completely cut down to size yeah and then the rest of the movie it would have been ben stiller trying to become Tom Cruise again. That's how Buñuel would have done it. I kind of want to see that now. Yeah, <laughs> Ben Stiller playing we Tom Cruise. Of, we could probably do that now <laughs> with like deep fakes. Yeah, right, right. I'll get right on it. Uh, Connor, Tom Cruise, C-R-O-Z-E. Yeah, from, <laughs> from the Mission Impossible 2 behind the scenes thing. He's harmless. He's harmless. Um, but so we're, we're, I feel like we're coming to the end of our hour. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor the eyes. We could talk about it for five hours probably. Um, one thing we talked about tackling, we, which we can only, we can briefly kind of say, Hey, watch this. I would, I would hope we would all agree, but I suppose we'll see is eyes wide shut is Kubrick's last movie, of course. But as we all know, he, uh, only two years later, Steven Spielberg makes AI artificial intelligence, which is his is Spielberg's first screenplay credit since Close Encounters, I believe, and is made in honor of Kubrick, who wanted to make this movie, which is based on um, was it Super Toys Last All Summer Long uh, by Brian Aldiss and you know, is Kubrick's Pinocchio story, essentially, which he'd been trying to make for some time and ultimately landed on Ian Watson writing the version that does, he gets a screen story credit, Ian Watson does. Um, and it's just lovely that that movie happens because, you know, as legend has it, as Spielberg has said, Kubrick ultimately wanted Spielberg to direct the movie as the development continued because he felt it was more kind of a Spielberg picture ultimately. And Kubrick was going to kind of help in the writing of it. And then Spielberg does make it with Haley Joel Osment. Um, 
and many others. And um, not unlike Eyes Wide Shut, it kind of comes out to a lot of fanfare and it comes out. People are like, oh, no, no, thanks. But I yeah. think, then, like, I think does, 20 years later, yeah, same I think deal, finds, yeah. finds its feet, you know, two decades later. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, yes. I mean, and I think I said this on Twitter the other day about I think somebody was talking about the um, the 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 botched 2001 re-release of 2001. I mean, Kubrick's stock at this point, you know, obviously several years after his death was kind of at its lowest um, right. because Eyes Wide Shut was seen as a failure. Um, AI was seen as a failure and not just failures, but like, quote unquote, embarrassing failures, like movies that were like, you know, whose sincerity just completely clashed with the very ironic, you know, hyper aware hype you know metatextual uh world of the late 90s early 2000s mm-hmm. um you know the the pre-september 11th era if you will um yeah yeah, yeah. you know the pox americana age <laughs> um the short-lived pox americana age um but um yeah and and it you know 2001's re-release gets wrapped up in this and it's like you know it's not really it's like half released and people see it and, and they're complaining about how it's slow and whatnot uh I'm, I'm just i'm very glad that that you know that that era ended and now all these movies are masterpieces i will say i don't entirely buy the the line that kubrick wanted um spielberg to direct ai Interesting. i mean my conversations with leon vitelli um you know he has indicated that that kubrick was very much planning to direct ai because he was like you know I mean, they had started, uh, you know, restarting casting um, for AI, or he was getting ready to start casting again for AI as Eyes Wide Shut was wrapping up. Um, so, you know, I think I think Kubrick had every intention of directing it. Now, he might have said at some point while talking to Spielberg, "Oh, yeah, maybe you should direct this." You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, but but I don't know that Kubrick ever said, "No, no, no, I'll produce you direct." I that, that seems like a very un-Kubrick thing to say. And well, do. And, and the thing about, right, Bill, you would agree with this, Kubrick, to read about him and to hear the Leon Vitalis of the world talk about him, look, he was a New Yorker who who had that New Yorker sense of brashness and humor, right? And that gets lost in the, like, hermetic genius legend that surrounds mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick, which is not fully true. Like, he was yeah. an amazing family guy and he he was a tough dude and the Shelley Duvall stuff will obviously always be a tough thing to kind of wrestle with as you know as we wrestle with all these artists in different ways or 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 whatnot but but um he had a sense of humor and a playfulness that that certainly when you read about it and you see interviews rare though they may be does come across here and there so uh, you're totally right i could see him saying to spielberg almost as like a like yeah well you know what et why don't you direct it like you know blah blah blah. and like spielberg kind of (laughs) maybe processes that differently as time goes on and and it becomes more of a like homage to to my friend stanley type of a thing Yeah. yeah i mean i have this image in my head of like watching you know Kubrick and 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 Spielberg just like sitting around and like <laughs> for some reason I, I'm imagining that that Kubrick is just calling Spielberg ET <laughs> like that's his name for hey ET <laughs> why don't you direct AI uh, <laughs> uh, you you like you like those acronyms <laughs> you do AI um, but um, yeah I mean and, and we did you know obviously you know this is about final pictures 
um, and how weirdly appropriate sometimes they are and how weirdly appropriate Eyes Wide Shut seems. But if you think about it, AI would have been mm. a great final film to go out on and also Wartime Lies because, you know, the Holocaust is something he was obsessed with for, for a long time. And maybe that would have been the film where, you know, he confronted some of the issues that were, you know, subtext in his other films. You know, that might have been an amazing film to go out on, too. I mean, obviously, you know, we have Spielberg's AI, which is a lovely film, not very Kubrickian, I think, but but still very much, you know, his structure, his characters. Um, I will say, you know, one of the things like all the um, conspiracy theories that have emerged uh out of eyes wide shut which i did a little thing on back in the day um and it's funny because so much of it feeds into some of the QAnon stuff now oh god like the yeah. mk ultra stuff probably is you know is like basically QAnon version 1.0 but the thing as we were talking about um as as in the past hour that that like occurred to me because this was one of the reasons given for eyes wide shuts box office underperformance the weekend of its release was that was the weekend that john f kennedy jr disappeared oh <laughs> john f kennedy jr the guy that QAnon was convinced was going to come back and become president and lead the revolution um, let me let me quickly get on my hn yeah yeah like i just i just realized i was wait there's a john f kennedy jr connection to eyes wide shut which uh, means there's a john f kennedy jr connection to mk ultra which you know like suddenly like well i can see on the wall behind you your web with, yeah, uh, yeah with exactly strings and you're, you're watching a man get red pilled in real time right now Bill, Bilga in six hours from now, three a.m. Just like on the on the message boards, just like digging deep for the next. Uh, yeah. Profile. So on, on Sunday, March fourteenth, people, if you see Bilga unraveling on the internet, uh, you'll you'll know why. Um. So Connor, why don't you? What are what are like what are final what are final thoughts on Eyes Wide Shut as we kind of wrap up this uh, this great movie? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Still great. Like I said, it was interesting. Because I think my history with the movie is fairly similar to yours, Dan, in terms of like watched it when I was probably too young. Right. And didn't like it. And then probably revisited it. I don't know, maybe when I was like 20 and was like, oh, this is interesting. And I think, frankly, like a lot of the Kubrick movies that I've come to love, like I think it's the same pattern with him as a filmmaker generally is like his movies. I just kind of come around to where I revisit them like every five or 10 years and I'm like, Oh wait, no, this is amazing. Right. And I think this one I got there with a little bit quicker, but on a rewatch, it was fun to just put it directly in the context of the rest of his movies. Um, eyes wide shut in general. I just think, um, I, I feel like I don't even need to really encourage listeners to seek it out if they haven't. Cause it's, you know, as we've said, it's, it's gotten its reappraisal. I think it, it sits as, as a uh, as a modern masterpiece, um, which it rightly deserves. Yeah, and I think uh, Bilga, we'll, we'll let you have the final word on this. I'll be quick. I mean, uh, uh, the last thing I'll say is, 1999 is one of our great movie years, and I think it's only fitting that a movie like this, you know, sits among stuff like you know The Matrix, right, and you know Election, and all these other kind of amazing. Uh, uh, movies that have that came out that year, you know, which it, it feels like it only it's like a a good wine. It only gets better with age. Kind of the the further way you get from nineteen ninety nine. So that's a great context to watch the movie in. Uh, Brian Rafferty's our our good friend. His great book is a great 
uh, you know, book to kind of use as like a palate cleanser for that as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I love more than any other movie. So it's like, you know, to, to the point of where we're talking about the Pollock billiard scene, everything you said, Bill guy loved and you're totally right. And I think that's why I love it. It's a, it's a scene that doesn't feel right. You watch it and you're like, it's too long. It's too mannered. And in rewatching some of Kubrick's work, a thing that I now miss that I was reminded he kind of was so great at achieving is exercising, um, like exorcising, uh, overt extroverted performance performances from his actors which is something that so rarely happens in movies now because we're in this very naturalistic acting space which is great but watching tom cruise kind of ham deliver those lines watching pollock ham deliver those lines you know watching the d'onofrio performance of full metal jacket you know the modine twitchiness right like these things that would feel silly and is maybe another reason to your point there's a weird sincerity to the silliness that I think people maybe didn't respond. Cause as you, as you point out, Bilga by 99, that was kind of, that felt old fashioned. So all of that makes me love all of his movies that much more. Um, and I think, yeah, with AI, you get a strange melding of two very different artists in a imperfect very great movie in my opinion uh so ai is all made all the more interesting uh in in that respect so and yeah bill what do you think final words on on the on the movie well i mean i think that he's no you're absolutely right you know kubrick's understanding of performance is a fascinating thing that we maybe don't talk about enough um like I'm surprised. I don't think anybody has really written a book about performance in Kubrick's films. Well, there you go. And yet it's yeah, <laughs> and yet it's so it's so important, right? Um, and it's so integral to how the films are received. I mean, you look at the way Jack Nicholson's performance was received in The Shining, or Shelley Duvall's performance, um, and you know, or how. You know, Lee, uh, Lee Ermey's performance like makes Full Metal Jacket, um, and that is the biggest, broadest performance anybody has ever given in the history of cinema. <laughs> um, right, right. But you know, he's a drill sergeant, so it's okay. Um, but um, and you're right in that he completely, um, you know, ignored all the sort of acting trends of his day. I mean, this is a guy, you know, nobody gives like a gritty, mumbly performance in one of his movies. And yet he was making films during that era. Mm. Um, You know, the the kind of control that he exerts over these actors who in many cases, I mean, obviously with some major exceptions, never quite achieve the the heights that they achieve in these films. Right. I mean, Matthew Modine's a great actor. I I love the guy. Really nice guy, too. But, you know, like he's always going to be private Joker. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ryan O'Neill is the perfect example. Right. right. I mean, Ryan O'Neill at least was a star at the time, but like, sure as hell wasn't a star after Barry Lyndon. He was he was Redmond Barry. Um, right, but I think right, he's perfect right. in that movie. Um, perfect, yeah. Yeah. You know, or Marissa Berenson. I mean, and there's this thing that I remember, you know, during that period when Eyes Wide Shut was being produced and um, all my like, extremely online Kubrick nerd friends 
and I, we would try and find any information that we could. And one of them actually found a guy, somebody, an anonymous actor or I can't remember, anonymous actor or crew member who like talked, right? This was well before the film came out. And one of the th stories they told me, which I, which I will relate to you here, and, you know, I, I, I don't know how accurate this is, but they said Nicole Kidman has a big speech in the film, um, which turned out to be correct. Um, and one day, you know, they did a take of the speech. One take, she goes through the whole thing. She completely nails, nails the speech. She's crying. Everybody's crying. The crew's crying. She, she ends. It's like this agonizing thing for her. The entire crew breaks into applause. It's like her greatest acting moment. And Stanley goes up to her and he says, that was great, but it's the wrong movie. We're going again. <laughs> you know. And so they go back and they completely redo the scene. I don't know how, I don't know if this is apocryphal or what, but I can totally see a version of that, you know, Kidman speech where she, or maybe it was something that was cut from the finished film. Who knows? But, you know, I can totally see a version of that that's much more kind of edgy and realistic and twitchy and agonizing or whatever. Um, but it's but the the version we have in the film is perfect. And it's yeah. but it's perfect for this movie. If you put it in another movie, it wouldn't work. It's perfect for this movie with its dreamlike atmosphere, with you know, with its the, the the grainy photography. I mean it's it's perfect for this movie, but if you took it out of the context of this movie, it would all completely dissolve. I totally couldn't agree with you more. Um yeah, and you're right. It is an undercover part, an undercovered part of of the Kubrick kind of experience. A hundred percent is kind of what he was able to get up, get out of his actors, um, and how it was kind of it was markedly different than many others. Um, Bill, go. Where can people find all that you do and uh, Twitter and everything else? Um, well, I'm, I'm on, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Bilga Ibiri, B-I-L-G-E-E-B-I-R-I. -E -E um, and, uh, you know, since I'm a staffer at New York Magazine and Vulture, almost everything I do these days is there. Occasionally you'll, you'll see me show up somewhere else, but, um. I mean, we'll see you on the Brooklyn Nets sports blogs, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you'll see me trolling, uh, <laughs> trolling james harden um but uh no yeah uh, that's 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 where to find me yeah, on, you, on vulture you have uh you have anything coming up you want to plug uh while you have the chance um i mean I, i'm i'm in the middle of reviewing the snyder cut uh, hey now, uh, hey now. but hey. it'll probably be uh, well you know it's funny this this part so if you're listening if you're listening the day this releases it's the day yeah the snyder cut is available it's because it's thursday it's the 18th oh so okay. If if you're one of our guys who are, who are downloading immediately, go get that Snyder cut or don't. I don't know. I, I, I will say I enjoyed the Snyder cut. I have, oh. I, have, I have seen it twice now. Hey now. Which, given that it's four hours and two minutes, say, is, is quite a bit of cinema. Um, you know, I have my issues with it. I am not the world's biggest Zack Snyder fan. Uh, quite the opposite, but uh, there is something to that movie um, that is is a very touching in many ways. Wow, Ooh. I you know what? Honestly, I gotta tell you, I have not been more excited to watch it than right I, now. Which is like, which is like going from like a one to like a three. Like, right. but I, but I, but I am excited to more excited, more interested to check it out. I do think also, me and you, like, I follow you on Twitter and I see your take. We were talking about this before. I see your takes and whatnot, obviously, and I do find this penchant for like the like 
the almost boondoggle as passion project thing. Like I, I, me and Connor talk about this a lot. I think there's a predisposed want for finding something, you know, where it's like, oh, wow. Like he was able to refashion it the way he wanted it to after this tragedy. And like, even if it's not perfect, you know, it's like, I was talking to a friend on Twitter today and we were talking about Hugh Hudson's revolution starring Al Pacino. Oh, yeah. And like I got to go see that. They did the Pacino retrospective at Quad Cinema a few years ago. And I like took I like dragged my friend. I was like, no, you don't get it. We gotta go. Like <laughs> we'll you'll never see this on screen ever. And like Pacino was there with Hugh Hudson. And it's not a great movie, but it's like a Revolutionary War epic from 1985, starring Pacino, that wore him out so much he basically quit acting for four years. Right, basically. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about and it one day. On we'll talk about it one day for, for sure. sure on the on the B side. <laughs> and like they just talked about how hard it was to make the movie before you watch the movie, and you're like, wow, yeah, that looks like it was hard to make. And like it's hard to not have a certain amount of love for a movie like Revolution or like 1900 or Meet Joe Black we've talked about on this podcast or like these kind of big you know uh, swings and misses and what have you anyway so i i appreciate that and i lo- and, and keep keep doing what you're doing and <laughs> thank you and we we so we so appreciate you being on to talk about eyes Chet. for 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 me the same as always DJ Mecca on Twitter uh there'll be reviews coming up on the film stage as as always uh interviews as well um so yeah, keep keep uh you know keep watching, keep reading, keep listening. Uh you know uh and uh watch as much for goodness sake. It's great, Connor. Over to you. Yeah, as we as we wrap up here, uh, if you like what you've heard here, you can uh, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you are listening. We greatly appreciate it, and uh, you can find this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFSB Side. Um, also quick plug, we, we have brought back, uh, cinephile game nights, which are happening once a month now. Um, so we just had a wonderful one with the folks at TCM underground. Yeah. Um, so you can catch the replay. Oh, and Bill, we got to get you on one of those, by the oh, way. Oh yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll find you a spot. Is this the, is this the cinephile, uh, is this, this thing here? Oh, oh yeah. are you going to show it to us? Yeah. Oh, Corey Everett's a listener. He's going to say, oh yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, going to love it. You just made Corey Everett cry is what you did. Yeah, you can so take a, should we take a screenshot? Sure. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. We'll, just, take it. Just, we'll take it. Just for him. I'm taking it right now. Here we go. Him. Got it. Got it. Love it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I should have done this. Sorry. No, you're fine. It's you're fine. fine. <laughs> he, knows, he knows what the game looks like. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but we do have those going on now. Um, and uh, for that one in particular, um, the charity that we are raising funds for is active, uh, at least through our channels it's active uh, until the end of the month so that you can uh you can register to get uh some prizes for that so you can uh you can check that out at cinephilegame.com as well or the film stage um also uh yeah i don't know you can find me on twitter at scruffy looking and uh and i think that's about it for now and look as we all hopefully are kind of Coming out of a really, really terrible time, hopefully sometime soon, we all know that there's one thing we have to do as soon as possible. Fuck. Fuck.